Lord, that you would help to teach from your word, that we would be able to enjoy our time together, be encouraged in it. Lord, it's very familiar territory for some of us, but let us go over it once again. And Lord, be reminded of how simple and true the gospel really is. Guide and direct us through our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, some of the material that we're going to cover in this Bible study, in this series, is going to be very familiar ground, but we are trying to uh, lay a a simple and, and complete foundation for what we believe. And uh, we go back to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus made the statement that he would build his church and that his church would not be prevailed against. Uh, the word that uh, that we like to use is perpetuity. That means it's going to continue. There is a continuance of churches. And so, in Matthew chapter 16, as we studied that chapter, we found out that Jesus claimed to be the founder, the rock upon which the church is built. It is not Peter, it is Jesus. Uh, and Jesus claimed to be the founder, the foundation, the builder, the propagator, oftentimes uh, we talk about preachers and we'll say uh, Brother Thompson built uh, a, a great church there in Cleveland, the Cleveland Baptist Church. And, and really that is not uh, the proper way to express that. If it's a true church, Jesus is the one that did the building. It was Brother Thompson who was just the pastor or the leader of that church. And, uh, and so... Uh, This church is going to continue, and we found out that the subject, the topic, the main uh, idea of this church is about Jesus and Jesus alone, nothing else. In fact, Peter was rebuked. He was actually called Satan by Jesus Christ because he savored the things of man and not the things of God. That verse that we often quote, what shall a man give in exchange for a soul? Or what is a man profited if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Is in the context of the value of entering and serving Christ through his church. There is no greater accomplishment by a human being than to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the true church of Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot of difficulties in our day and in our time because every church out there claims to be the true church. And if they didn't, why do they exist? I mean... If you said, uh, we're, we're not the true church, but we're the best example of it, and so therefore uh, we can't find the true church, well, does that not contradict what Jesus said when he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? I, I believe that it does. 
So I believe that this church was started by Jesus, that it is continuing. And so what we're going to be doing now is looking for biblical characteristics of that church that Jesus started. And uh, Brother Franz has often uh, argued me this point, there's no such thing as distinctives. Well, I looked it up in the OED today, and the word distinctive is used as a noun. It is very rare and obsolete. It's not used in American English, but it's used in English English. And since our King James Bible is English, English, we're going to stick with distinctives as a noun, all right? Even though the spell checker says it's not a word, uh, if the OED, Oxford English Dictionary, says it's a word, uh, we'll correct the spell checker, amen? And and so what we mean by this, and I just put the definition in here, uh, this is definition B, and you'll see that little N there is a period that denotes the word is being used as a noun, not an adjective, that it is a distinguishing mark or quality, a characteristic. And so what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is we are going to be looking for these distinguishing characteristics or distinctives that should be a mark of the church that Jesus started, of that church that is going to continue and so as we look at these things, and and there are so many different ways that we could arrange this, and uh, even people have it. I, I like the acrostic Baptist, and we just take the initials uh, of the letter of the name Baptist, and we go through those. Um, you can arrange it any way you want. Uh, you can even use different words, but you can't get around the word baptism. Uh People have often said, well, they call you Baptist because you baptize. Well, let me digress because the first part of what we're doing is we're establishing now that Jesus said he would start his church, he would build his church, and his church would continue. Then we're going to go through and we're going to look at those distinguishing characteristics, what we call Baptist distinctives, those marks that we ought to find in that church that Jesus started because it is following the direction that Jesus said. You know, this is uh, not an incredible thought process involved here, but if Jesus, as the Bible says, is the head of his church, ought there not be some uniformity, ought there not be some... Uh, distinguishing characteristics that we can see. And we've used the example of a family. When you have a family there, uh, especially one like ours with a lot of kids, uh, you can see some characteristics. And in fact, people often will go, is that one of yours? Oh, yeah. Well, that one looks like one, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, they're not too hard to figure out. Uh, And that's true of almost any family, is it not? And yet, when it comes to the doctrine of the church, people say, oh, well, that's what you believe about the church. No, that's not what we believe. That's what the Bible says. There's a difference. And so, the reason 
we have the name Baptist is not because of John the Baptist. I, I wish that were true. That would be so easy. Amen. Uh, I remember while I was a student in Bible college, one of the ladies I worked with, uh, she was a member of a denomination called the Church of Christ. I mean, what better name could you have for a church than Church of Christ? Well, I'll tell you one, Baptist, all right? But, uh, uh, see, Churches of Christ were started by a man named Alexander Campbell in the 1830s, a, a defrocked Presbyterian preacher who spent a short time in Baptist churches, and he decided to call his church the Church of Christ in this uh, lady I was working with said, see, our church is older than yours because the Bible says the churches of Christ greet thee. That was talking about our church. And I had to try to catch myself. I saw a few of you snickering. And, and uh, really, that, that is very, uh, it's quite ludicrous, ridiculous, because there was no such thing as a quote-unquote church of Christ before Alexander Campbell in the 1830s. That's pretty recent in history. And I always just say this, beware. There is an offshoot of the offshoot of the offshoot that's in here in New York City. Uh, and it's called the, the New York City Church of Christ. Uh, if you ever run into anybody that identifies themselves like that, you better run the other direction. These people are... Uh, dangerous in many ways. They believe in dormitory living. They confiscate goods. I mean, it's, it's a cult. It really is a, uh, a very, very bad, unbiblical, on so many points, uh, organization. Our church is called Baptist because of the issue of baptism in the Middle Ages, those who refused to believe in the baptism of infants came to be classified as Anabaptists. The prefix Anna, uh, not having to do anything with the name Anna, of course, but the prefix means against. And because these people were against the baptism of babies then they were all classified as against faith in Christ. Well, let me ask you, who wrote that dictionary? Well, the Catholic Church did. Because they not only owned the uh, religious government, they owned the uh, federal or the civil government as well. There was a marriage of those two things. And the church would use the federal government to persecute those. And one of the issues that they persecuted on was the refusal of the baptism of babies. Now, why was that so important? Because they believed, this is just an historical fact, you can read it in any history book. They believed that if the king who was ruling over his area did not have control of all of the people in the area both physically, in the civil sense, and religiously, that he could not establish and have a firm type of government. Freedom of religion was unknown to the medieval world. In fact, some of the cruelest persecutors of religion were the Protestants who had broken free from the Catholics. And uh, uh, these things were... Uh, were part of medieval Europe, 
as we progressed into the late uh, came through uh, late medieval period, came through the Renaissance. There was some more freedom of religion. People began dropping the name Anna, and they became known as Baptists. Now let's be careful of one thing, just as it is today. We don't trace our religion in the name. We trace it in the doctrine. Can we say amen to that? Just because someone uses the name does not mean they have the truth. I.e., Bill Clinton claims to be a Baptist. Had somebody asked me, what would you do if Bill Clinton came in your church? We'd tell him to get saved, number one, and publicly repent of his sin, number two. And if he didn't do that, he would have to go somewhere else to go to church. Uh, he wouldn't be comfortable in this kind of church anyway. But there's, there's a lot of people who just use that name because it's a very popular name. And the neat thing about it is nobody owns it. If you want to start the uh, Seventh-day Redeemed Baptist Church of Zion, and fill in everything in, under your... Nobody can stop you. But if I took Open Door Bible Baptist Church down and put First Orthodox Church on that sign out there, it wouldn't be a week gone by. I'd have a visit from the Ukrainian Orthodox minister. St. Demetrius would be over here. Uh, and uh, four or five other smaller churches would come and they'd say, you're not part of our organization. You don't have a right to put the Orthodox on your name. You see, nobody owns the name Baptist. It's free. But it does mean some things. And that's what we're going through here. We are not Baptists because my father was a Baptist. My father was a machinist at Black and Decker, not a preacher. Uh, he belonged to probably the largest religious organization in the world today most of his life. None. I mean, if you would ask him what he was, he'd have told you he's a Catholic. You know how many times my dad went to church? He never went to church before he got saved. That just wasn't important to him. You see, the word Baptist means some things. And it is attached to this idea called baptism. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Bible baptism is and what it isn't, and not everything we can deal with for sure, but let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And verse 1 says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about round about Jordan, 
and were baptized of him in the Jordan, in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. We'll say verses 11 and 12 for a few minutes. This was John's message. John came preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what does the word repent mean? It means turn around. That's all that it means. It's, uh, one preacher put it this way, a working definition. It's a change in heart that results in a change in direction. Uh, we have certain preachers out in, even in the Baptist group today, that preach that you don't need to repent to get saved. Uh, I want to challenge you, if you don't change direction, you're not saved. Got one amen out of that. How about another one? I mean, you cannot. You cannot leave the world and embrace faith in Christ and keep going in the same direction you were going in before you were saved. You cannot... Leave faith in a false religion and have true faith in Jesus Christ and some things not change in your life. Could we say amen to that? And this is what John was saying. But who was John preaching to? John was preaching to the Jews, the Jewish people. So what was going to change? Well, he told the scribes and Pharisees very plainly. He said, you need to bring forth some fruits that are meat, that are worthy of this thing called repentance. Do you know that the religion of the Jewish people at this time was about 90% tradition and 5% Bible and other things? Their faith was not in the Word of God. In fact, the Pharisees had developed as a group because their job was to protect the Bible. They wanted to keep it safe. You see, they felt that people were too lax and people were uncaring about what was in the Bible. And so what they were going to do was they were going to stake out new territory that was so far away from error that you couldn't possibly sin if you kept their tradition. Now, that almost makes sense. But I want to challenge you, that's exactly what Eve did in the garden, wasn't it? What did God say? He said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that what God said? said, In the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. And when the devil asked Eve what 
God had said, what did she say? Neither touch it. You see, if you don't touch it, you'll never eat it. Well, that's true, isn't it? Absolutely. You can't eat the fruit without touching it. But that's not God's law. Let me ask you a question. Has man ever made a law that he hasn't broken? If you know of one, tell me, because I don't know of any. I don't know of any law that man has made that man has not broken. In fact, I don't know any law that God has made that man hasn't broken. You see, repentance is looking at the direction of my life and understanding it's not going to get me to heaven. That's why Jesus said, except ye repent, ye shall what? All likewise perish. Now, John came preaching this message of repentance, and the next thing we read is all Jerusalem and the areas round about and the whole region in that area, they all came to John and were baptized of him. Now, where did that come from? Now, if you read in any Protestant commentary, it will tell you that baptism of John the Baptist was a continuation of the washing rituals of the Jewish traditions. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, you can read in the Jewish tradition what their washing rituals were. The individual washed themselves at the instruction of the Pharisees and the priests. That's not what John did. The people came to John, and John did the baptizing. And the word baptize is not the word wash. It's The word baptize simply means to dip, to cover, to immerse is what it means. That's why even to this day, the Orthodox Church will take babies and they immerse them. They'll hold them under the shoulders with one hand and squeeze a little nose with the other and uh, say whatever they say and boosh down in the water. Uh, they, they, they understand the meaning of the word. Uh, baptism by any mode other than immersion is what we call innovation. It's changing what is in the scriptures. And so these people came to John, and my first question has always been, are you more repentant because you get wet? Does getting wet make you more repentant than you were before you got wet? Absolutely not. All it is, is an outward symbol of what happened on the inside. It's a testimony of something that happened inside. This is why John said, I baptize with water unto repentance. If you're truly repentant, 
Shouldn't you be willing to tell somebody about it? And the way that God designed for you to tell people about it was to get dunked. To get put under the water. And, and we'll make the other connections that are there. But at this point, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ hadn't happened yet. They were just following what John sent. Now, where did John get his information? John chapter 1, verse 6. If you know it, say it with me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Yes. You were waiting for me to say something else. I know. And I wanted to put it, something else in there. But the only thing that came to mind was Hubemeyer, but that, that wouldn't fit. Um, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John the Baptist. He came. He's not John the Baptizer, by the way. He was John who established the ceremony, the practice the word we use is ordinance of baptism. And we'll get to that when we get to the letter T. Two ordinances and, and, and uh, two offices in, in the church. And so, the only other part of John's baptism, if you want to read with me, John chapter 1 and verse 31 This is John the disciple quoting John the Baptist here. And he says, John the Baptist is speaking. He says, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, am I come baptizing with water? John understood that this thing, this ordinance called baptism, was the way that God had planned to introduce or to present the Messiah to the nation of Israel. And so John's baptism had a twofold purpose. Those that repented, those that were preparing their heart for the coming Messiah, were to be baptized saying, I am repentant, I am ready for a change, I am ready for the Messiah to come. And when the Messiah himself showed up, it was his presentation to Israel as their Messiah. That, that's the purposes of John's baptism. And so we then go back to Matthew chapter 3, if you would, and we'll just pick up in verse 11. John is speaking here. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me... Who's mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, John is explaining a few things. He's saying, I baptize you with water unto repentance. Well, we've explained that. Now he says, he that cometh after me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And he's going to baptize you with fire. Now, one thing you'll always hear me say, and I hope you never get tired of hearing it. The Bible explains the Bible. 
You want the world's best commentary on the Bible? Read your Bible. Don't read a bunch of other books. Read what the Bible says. And so, as we see baptism mentioned here, John gives us a physical picture, an illustration, a window that we can see through. There's only one problem. How many of you know what purging the floor means? What is it to have his fan in his hand? Does that mean he has it plugged in in a long extension cord? I mean, that's what we think of a fan today, right? How many of you... I guess they make those battery-powered ones. Maybe, maybe... No. No. Here's what John was doing. Every person that understood John was hearing him speak these words knew exactly what he was talking about. They were talking about the method of threshing wheat or grain. You would have a threshing floor. It could be a small thing. It could be as big as half the size of this auditorium. But it would be a stone or hard surface that had been smoothed out over the years. And they would take the grain. They would harvest it. They would bring it there. They would chop the heads off. How many of you have seen a picture of wheat growing in the field? You, know, you have a stalk about this long. A head is what they call it. And the kernels of wheat are there. And God made a way to protect them from insects and things. He wrapped it in seven layers of chaff. Now, the chaff, all it is, is the wrapping. Have any of you ever tried to eat a corn husk? It won't do you any good. The nutrition is in the corn, not in the husk. And uh, same as with the wheat. So they, they would take those heads of wheat and put it on that floor and then they would put a rake or, or some kind of heavy item on there and they would roll the grains until the chaff had separated. Well, now you had a mixture of chaff and wheat. So you'd get a fan. This kind of fan. Manual labor. And you would make a breeze with the fan and someone would take a shovel-like instrument and they would pitch the mixture into the air and the fan would blow the chaff to the far end of the threshing floor and the wheat being heavier would fall to the center. How many of you have actually seen that? If you've lived in the Philippines, uh, you see that. They still do it that way. In India... They still do it. In America, we have these great big machines that just go through the field and does everything. Uh, all, all, the, all the work is done there. But in John's day and still in our day, if you go to the right places, you can see people doing this very thing. And he said, this is the illustration of the two baptisms. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the wheat into the garner and... I hope you heard as I emphasized the pronouns that were in there. It said, he shall gather his wheat into his garner. That, that's talking about possessiveness, possession there. But he's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, every time you see that word unquenchable connected to fire in your King James Bible, it's talking about 
hellfire. It's talking about the lake of fire. Do you think when John said that he's going to baptize you with fire, that John had read Revelation chapter 20 and it talks about the lake of fire? No, that, hadn't, that was going to be written about 70 years later, after this time. But the Holy Spirit instructed Matthew to put this terminology in the Scripture. And this is one of the things that makes our Bible one book. Because it agrees. You can be baptized in a lake, can't you? Well, if the substance of that lake was fire, then you could be baptized with fire. The only problem is that's an eternal baptism. It's a baptism of damnation. And that's not a curse word when you use it that way. That is talking about the judgment of Almighty God sentencing a rebellious sinner to eternity without God. Hell is not the final resting place of the dead. Read Revelation. Hell is going to be emptied out. Everybody there is going to be judged. And death and hell are going to be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So when you turn on TVN and you hear the preacher talking about, you need to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire, you can know one thing. That man doesn't understand his Bible. And if he doesn't understand about baptism, maybe he doesn't understand about a lot of other things. This is a comment that I have made and and I stand by it. Uh, I've had some arguments with several people over the doctrine of Calvinism. And I said, you know, if John Calvin couldn't figure out what the Bible said about baptism, maybe there's a lot of other things he couldn't figure out right. Hello? Uh, This is a distinctive. Do you know that 200 years ago in history... If we go back in history in the United States of America 200 years, there were no Mormons, there were no Church of Christ, there were no Jehovah's Witnesses, there were none of these cults that run around today. The only people who baptized by immersion, people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, were Baptist. No one else did that. The Roman Catholic Church has never immersed a believer in water and called it baptism. The Orthodox Church, their oldest churches and their most ancient baptistries were capable of immersing adults. You know why? Because those churches weren't part of what is the modern-day Orthodox Church. And when I say modern-day, I'm talking 500 A.D., by the way. Because most of the traditions that the Orthodox Church followed today can be traced back to that time period where they were developed between 310, 312, Constantine, up until about 500 
uh, and, and development of tradition basically stopped around 1000 A.D. The Orthodox Church really does have a claim to that title if they call it the Orthodox uh, faith because they are a reflection of an ancient church that dates back to about 500 A.D. The only problem is the Baptist church baptizes the same way that John the Baptist did. Well, well, that gives us another 470-some years before the traditions of the Orthodox Church. And if we simplify things, if we go back 1,500 years, they were killing people because they baptized believers by immersion. Who was doing the killing? Well, it was the Protestants and it was the Catholics. And some of the Protestants didn't have the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> whatever you would call it, uh, bloodlust for the murder of people who disagreed with them, but they found a neat little trick. If they exiled them out of the Protestant areas and forced them to move into the Catholic areas, the hounds of hell would catch them and burn them at the stake, and they were very happy about that. Uh, so, you know, Martin Luther is not my hero. I have no love at all for John Calvin Zwingli. Zwingli, he was John Calvin's chief assistant. Uh, he called it the, the third baptism. Because he believed baptism of babies by sprinkling or... Uh, was the first baptism, and if you repudiated that and was immersed as a believer in Jesus Christ, that was the second one. And when he caught you, he tied a rock around your neck and threw you in the river. That was the third one. This is history. You see, baptism sets us apart. Baptism of Holy Ghost is simply salvation. Baptism of fire is damnation. The baptism of water is the physical testimony that you have, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's just that simple. And when you meet someone that says, well, you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Wait a minute. Excuse me. Who's the one that does the baptizing? The Holy Ghost does, right? Okay. But in the book of Acts, they spoke in tongues. Yes, they did. But, once the thing was proven, you see, I can go into any Pentecostal church and pull out half a dozen or so major errors they don't believe what Jesus taught about salvation. They don't believe what Jesus taught about the Bible and Revelation. They don't believe what Jesus taught about his church. Because if they did, they wouldn't exist. And so, therefore, you see, the Bible says, I'm given the gift of the Holy Spirit the moment I'm saved. You know what? I don't believe the sign because the sign was already given. I believe the word. 
Because this is the definitive point, and we'll get to that with letter A, the authority of Scripture. Amen? And so, what we have here is baptism, and just so we understand here, Jesus commissioned his church in Matthew chapter 28 to be baptized. Uh, to baptize. He says, go ye therefore, ye is plural, go ye therefore as a church, teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Again, that fits our parameters from Matthew chapter 16, doesn't it? Verse 18, we didn't, I didn't quote that. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. All about Jesus. Go ye therefore. Why? Because all power is given unto Jesus. Who are we to, what are we to teach? We're to teach Jesus. What do we do? Baptize him in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're to teach him everything that Jesus said. Uh, by the way, you've got to stick around a while if you want that third part. Because it only takes a lifetime. Amen. Do I have to preach that sermon again? I'm going to be in Oklahoma, halfway to Oklahoma Sunday night, but come on. Uh, we, we need to understand that this is what it was. And I want you to get this. All of the disciples were baptized by John the Baptist before Jesus identif- was identified as the Messiah. Now, what's the importance of that? None of the disciples were ever baptized again. Their baptism with John stood. Because the baptism of John is not salvation. If it were, Jesus would have had to baptize them all again. Right? But he didn't. The only difference between John's baptism and what happens in our baptistry right here is John's baptism. People were looking forward. They didn't know who the Messiah was, but they were committed to surrender to him the moment he was revealed. Today, we get baptized looking from this direction at the finished works of Jesus Christ, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's the exact same Think The baptism of John is what we practice in the Baptist church today, if it's a Bible-believing Baptist church. The only difference is our historical perspective. You see, after the resurrection, John's baptism didn't count anymore. Read Acts chapter 19. And uh, we're, we're, wow, I could, I'm halfway through this thing. So you can know where we'll pick up in two weeks, amen? I'm trying not to keep you here till nine o'clock, but the point that we want to finish with here is that water baptism is not salvation. It's a testimony of the possession of salvation. You know, this is the seed of all false churches, is somehow they will give you salvation. The true church of Jesus Christ cannot give you salvation. 
That's Jesus' job. He's the Savior. How can you be a part of his body until you're saved? Amen? It's amazing that the Bible calls the church the body of Christ, and yet here is the average doctrine in the average quote-unquote Christian church is you come to our church, you become a member of our church, you do everything we say, and maybe you'll be good enough to go to heaven someday. How many of you used to attend a church like that? A lot of you did before you got saved. Yet, here's what Jesus says. You come to me, you get salvation. Then you get baptism. Now you're a member of my church to serve me through my body. You see, the church doesn't give you salvation. It's the nursery for the newborns in Christ. Amen? It is the place that gives you protection. It's the greenhouse, we might say, as the young plants grow and get stronger. It is the base of operations from which the Christian serves God. The way I like to put it is, the church is the context for your relationship with Christ. Everything about Christ that you're going to learn, you're going to learn in the Bible, you should learn through and for and inside of a local church. The church is important. Jesus said it was. He said it was so important to become a part of that church that it it was better for you to lose everything. In fact, he said you can't be a part of it until you have lost everything. And should you gain the entire world, it's of no value if your soul does not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is your testimony of that relationship with Christ. And we'll end with this point. That's why we don't accept baptism from churches that teach doctrinally different than we do. Because we do not want to give any credence whatsoever to false doctrine. Can we say amen to that? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight and we ask that you would take our our time together. And Lord, even though this is familiar ground and many of us believe these things already, that we would be assured and confirmed in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, that we would be willing to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just have a moment of silence.